I think it has to do with the fact that music is communication that doesn't tell you anything specific. We know that there's another human on the other end. We know that it means something, but we cannot tell what it means. So uh, Theodore Adorno said, you know, music is like hieroglyphics for which we've lost the code. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. Hey, hey, water coolians. Or do you like Cooler Crew better? Let me know on that one. Uh, welcome back to a brand new episode of the podcast. If you like music, heck, if you've ever listened to music, <laughs> like, no, actually, if you've ever heard a single sound, uh, I mean, I guess, or haven't heard a sound, but instead have come to understand a sound through explanation because deaf people do actually enjoy podcasts, I found. But anyways, you are, with 110% certainty, uh, if you're one of these people, going to enjoy this episode as well because we get to discuss music today, uh, especially how music has developed into the pure language of the emotions. We are lucky enough to be joined by Roger Matthew Grant, professor of music at Wesleyan University, and also dean of arts and humanities at the university as well. Uh, we get to dive headfirst, uh, uh, examine the drama of 18th century composers as their egos clashed, symphonies took shape, and rivalries hit their crescendos, and how those moments of love and hate, like genuine love and hate, help build how we've come to enjoy and understand music in today's world. For today's episode, Roger and I discuss the use of classical music to deter those freaking youngsters from acting like youngsters, and how music has developed through a deep personal connection uh, with our souls, if you're someone who believes in souls. The importance of art and how we can use it to explore the history of us and uh, how we relate to one another. And finally, under pressure, not one bit, we discuss the impact on music of the verdict in the Ed Sheeran Marvin Gaye lawsuit and how the perception of musical borrowing uh, has changed throughout history. And, you know, just, just to be clear, any rumors you may hear about myself not being a Vanilla Ice or Queen fan, uh, is it, it's all complete fabrications of the truth. Do not listen to those liars, those lies. Also, for no reason at all, just skip the podcast ahead a few minutes at, I mean, let's just throw out a number, the 45 minute mark. Let's try that one. Uh, it just would be funny to do that, I thought. So give it a try today. Just see. Just see what happens. But anyways, we have an absolute great conversation ahead for you. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to episode 81 of Water Cooler Talk podcast titled Art of Tones with Roger Matthew Grant. Enjoy. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake... They're absolutely not, because they're real. My first concert of any kind was going to see uh, Tchaikovsky's uh, The Nutcracker at the Scholar Center at Stony Brook in New York. So that was the first time for live musicians. I think what most people mean by concert is like a big pop music concert. The first time I went to one of those was when I was 17 it was MTV's TRL tour. Oh my goodness. With Destiny's Child. Wow, what a throwback. Yes, Destiny's Child at the Jones Beach Auditorium. And the special guest was the rapper Eve. This is like, you know, 1999 or something like that. It was awesome. pretty incredible. Yeah, mine was uh, Rascal Flats, the country band. Oh. But it was the first concert that Taylor Swift was opening for. Like her no first, way. yeah. So I. You know, I'm kind of the original Taylor Swift fan. <laughs> that is definitely a piece of cred. I know, right? Uh, all right, Roger, are you ready to jump into the podcast today? Absolutely. All right, listeners, this first news story comes from BBC News Wales, January 30th, 2023. Rexham McDonald's plays classical music to deter bad behavior. A Welsh branch of McDonald's on Regent Street in Wrexham, if you really want to know, has started to play classical music and ration Wi-Fi in a bid to deter antisocial behavior later in the evening to dissuade those darn darn youngsters. 
The fast food restaurant decided to take action after incidents at its Wrexham branch and elsewhere in the city by a group of 20 to 30 youngsters caused police to issue dispersal orders. McDonald's said it was committed to being a good neighbor in the Welsh area, stating, We are aware of antisocial behavior affecting the wider area and have introduced a number of measures in our restaurants to support the police in tackling this issue. Uh, Inspector Luke Hughes from North Wales Police stated there had been one allegation of assault, a fire extinguisher set off, signs and coins thrown at shop staff and younger children chased by this group. Those, <laughs> that's exactly what youngsters do, right? Despite some of the behaviors causing concern and upset, Wrexham has made some improvements in recent months. Inspector Hughes called on organizations like the cadets, youth clubs, and sports clubs, including the increased interest for the Wrexham Football Club, saying young people, and this is the most British saying ever, saying young people need occupying. So, Roger, obviously you uh, talked to, in this situation and in the situation you share with me about what's happening in L.A. Uh, with the city using classical music to uh, discourage homeless individuals. I mean, as someone with an extensive love of music, how do you view music being used in deterrence? You know, even going as far as what happened in Oklahoma, I don't know if you heard about this, but uh, prison guards use the song Baby Shark to torture inmates. Yeah, in fact, both of the instances that you just mentioned, Adam, uh, break my heart and are not the first of their type. Mm -hmm. You know, the use of classical music to deter people from congregating or loitering or to discourage, you know, unruly behavior or something like that, that that's been going on for a long time. Um, and the, probably the most recent incident that parallels the one at the Rex and McDonald's is this use in L.A., in the L.A. metro, to discourage homeless people from congregating. Uh, there are also a number of 7-Elevens that have used classical music in the same way. All of this breaks my heart. The use of music as a device in torture is something that my colleague Suzanne Cusick has written quite a lot about. She teaches at NYU. And uh, it has its origins actually in the Iraq war. Music is used as a weapon and as a device for torture uh, of, of prisoners of war um, in Iraq in a number of different ways. It can be used at extreme volumes or it can be used, you know, kind of as a, as a device of psychological torture, uh, whether it's the same song that's played on a loop or whether it's a, a kind of, you know, a song torture playlist that prison guards develop. I mean, obviously, all of these are, are horrific, and anyone who's really serious about music, you know, anyone who has an investment in a community of people who relate to each other through the use of music, you know, should be really concerned about, about all of this. I mean, what is it about the use of classical music? Because I know there's, like, the examples of playing music to, like, your plants, but I know that's more on, like, the vibrations. So it's like if you're playing metal music, it's obviously more vibrations. Uh, classic and um, lower vibration music helps plants grow better, helps kind of, like, their cells do something. I'm not that scientific. <clears throat> Scientist Adam here. <laughs> Don't worry where I got my degree. To explain... The vibrations from sound help plants produce movement in their cells, which in turn helps the plant to produce more nutrients. But like, what is it, do you think, about the use of classical music in all these situations that it's like something has to be working if they keep using it? You know, it's interesting. I'm not sure if there's been an empirical validation of that thesis. It, it may be true. It may be that people have, you know, um, colloquial evidence that it works. The only somewhat empirical evidence I could find for this claim was from a 2003 study done by the London Underground where they saw a 33% decrease in robberies after playing classical music. 700 commuters surveyed said that they overwhelmingly agreed that hearing classical music made them feel happy, less stressed, and relaxed. I think what's in the minds of people who institute a policy like this uh, it's something along the lines of classical music implies a community of people. And if you make it loud enough and fill a space with it, then you may make people feel unwelcome that are not perceived to be in that community. So it's an us versus them mentality. Yeah. And it's being used in an exclusionary way. So, I, you know, this breaks my heart because the implied community of classical music is a real thing. And the fact that certain people don't feel included is, you know, very real. It's a very, it's a very 
real part of a lot of people's experience of the world. I, I think that's heartbreaking. It's also, you know, a, a reflection of the reality that we live in. Mm-hmm. That if, if you are uh, someone that doesn't have a place to live and you're trying to put together an existence in the LA metro, you're not going to feel included in loud classical music that's being played. Yeah, I know specifically in their story, there was one individual who was playing, I think, like loud rap music or something to try to kind of combat that. But yeah, I mean, if you're creating the situation, this us use uh, versus them situation, and people don't feel included, I mean, sure, like these uh, uh, companies and organizations are getting the desired effect of getting people out of the area, but they're just going to another area. And like, I mean, I think it's just human nature to want to fit in and be a part of community and be a part of groups. And now we're saying, no, you can't be here. And it, it's, it hurts. It hurts. And to use and to uh, treat people like this way and use this music and use music as torture, man, it's just like reading these stories. I was just like, fuck. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. I think, you know, um, the part of it that seems particularly pernicious and you know, particularly difficult for me is that there are so many instances we can point to of music being used in precisely the opposite way as a connector, as something that welcomes people, as something that brings people in. So, you know, just ask Gustavo Dudamel, who's the conductor of the LA Philharmonic, you know, about his experience of classical music growing up. And it's something that brings, that lifts people up, that brings people together. And so to see it then, the same cultural object, reused as a tool of division is, you know, it's particularly hurtful. Um, it's also very real. And so I think anyone who thinks of themselves as part of the community that's hailed by classical music should be concerned about mm-hmm. this. Well, yeah, and I kind of want to get into um, your book, Peculiar Attunements. You talk about this idea of affects or passions, uh, how music makes us feel a certain way. Can you share a bit more about the ideas you presented and how music can be and is used to influence our uh, day-to-day lives? Absolutely. And I I think that there's a piece of this that's behind these really wrong-headed uses of classical music that, you know, maybe somebody out there thinks, well, you know, anyone who's listening to this classical music is going to be inspired to live life differently or something like that, right? And that's a a very old idea. Uh, In fact, it's an ancient idea. And it's one of the reasons that Plato wrote about music in the Republic. Particular kinds of music inspire certain kinds of behavior, and they make us feel a certain way. And we all know about that, right? Because we have a playlist for the treadmill. We have a playlist for, you know, tidying up around the house. Maybe we have a study playlist. So we use music to inspire these different moods all the time. Just check out all of the different recommendations that Spotify has for you, you know. (laughs) Quiet mix, chill mix, quiet moment, party vibes. What's interesting is that at a certain point in the 18th century, thinkers took a pivot in the way that they described this relationship. So it wasn't just that, well, you know, music can make me feel a certain way, and I want to figure out what that relationship is between music and feeling. They started doing the reverse. They started saying, well, actually aren't feelings kind of like music? Mm. And maybe shouldn't we use the terminology of music to describe feelings? Shouldn't we use music to understand feelings? And that's where we come up with all of this terminology still with us in the present day, that feelings are musical in some way, so that we have a good vibe, a good vibration, (laughs) or that people might be low key, like their key signature is low, or that they might be upbeat, something about their rhythm, or that they might be high-strung, like an instrument, or in fact that they might have a particular kind of temperament, as though they themselves were a violin that could be tuned. So there was a certain point in the 18th century where music actually became an explanatory tool for emotion, not just that music was a kind of cause or source of emotion, but that actually it might help to understand emotion in a kind of fundamental way. What do you think really caused that switch? Because, I mean, I spent a lot of time in music. I've worked in the music industry. So music as something deeper has always resonated with me. It's always made sense. But to think, you know, reading kind of your work and to think it might have been different back then, like what caused that switch? What caused people to be like, 
oh yeah, I'm going to boogie to this now. Yeah. I mean, I think it was a number of things that happened all at once. But one of the first things is that people started to take music seriously as an art form. If you go back further than the 18th century, music could furnish a dramatic situation with some really intense soundtracks, but it wasn't taken as seriously as poetry or drama. And music on its own in the 18th century really started to get its own scientific language and its own aesthetic terminology. And so that had to happen first. The other thing is that the way that we understand the world can a lot of times be influenced by technological innovations. So you hear a lot of people today talking about how to understand, uh, you know, organizations along a kind of network model or along a model that has to do with, um, you know, systems processing, because that's the way that we think about the Internet and computer technology. And in the 18th century, acoustics was a new phenomenon in physics that people were learning a lot about. In particular, they got very excited about the fact that when you pluck one string, it will make another string vibrate if they are tuned to the same pitch. And this was very fascinating to early moderns. They were really interested in this sympathetic resonance phenomenon. It's a known fact of physics. And they wondered, you know, maybe the mind is a little bit like that. Maybe, in fact, humans are... Yeah, maybe we're kind of like collections of strings. And when we hear these sounds, they vibrate something inside of us and they make us feel a certain way. No, I think I think that's so interesting and in how, I mean, it just makes sense, right? But you have to understand why it makes sense to get to the point of it making sense. You know, one of my favorite books about the subconscious, I love the subconscious, but Sub- Subliminal by Leonard Mildenoy. And he talks about how liquor stores, if they need to sell more Mexican beer, they'll play Mexican music because it plays on your subconscious. You hear Mexican music and you're like, oh, I want to get Mexican beer. And I think that's so interesting. Or uh, recently on the internet, there was this uh, Celtic music, the Celtic Kyrenix, and it's what they used to use prior to battle. And just imagining being a Roman soldier hearing this horn in the middle of the night, in the middle of the woods, and the fear... Until you understand why you are fearful of this music at a deeper level, you don't really understand it, if that, if that makes sense whatsoever. Absolutely. Yeah, it makes tons of sense. I think it, it starts to get really confusing when you ask questions about how it works. So, uh, I mean, we're literally not made of strings, you know. I mean, <laughs> right. It's not like vibrating little strings inside of us, um, although there's a lot we could say about what actually happens in the eardrum. That's, a, that's kind of another story. But I think what's fascinating is that for a long time, we've known about these connections. We've known that music works like this. And there are myriad different ways that people suppose the technical apparatus of music, its pitches, its rhythms, its melodies, can engender specific feelings. The relationship between the two is obscure, even if we know that the results are real. And theorists get very invested in trying to figure out, well, what rhythms exactly? What melodies exactly? How how does the music do this work? Mm -hmm. That's where I think emotions and theories of the emotions are very much like theories of music because there is a very, very profound effect that we know, that we experience as people. But when we begin to ask why and how it works, (laughs) we run up against a black box. Perfect segue. Perfect segue, Roger. I love that because I want to talk just based on your opinion, like how does music connect us to something deeper, something almost, you know, supernatural, otherworldly, you know, whether it be, I mean, one of my favorite musicians of all time, the first ever rock star, Robert Johnson, selling his soul, you know, at the crossroads to the devil or even, um, the description of the chord of nature that you talk about from E.T.A. Hoffman's work, The Automata, as you quote, sounds of the natural, I do my research, I do my research, uh, sounds of the natural phenomenon overtake him, producing in his body a sympathetic resonance, a sudden gripping visceral reaction that he cannot explain. Like, to you, what makes music connect to, like, our soul? This is such a fabulous question. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> 
I think it has to do with the fact that music is communication that doesn't tell you anything specific. We know that there's another human on the other end. We know that it means something, but we cannot tell what it means. So uh, Theodore Adorno said, you know, music is like hieroglyphics for which we've lost the code. And I really think that there is something very true about that statement. That is to say, music is a kind of language. It's, it's um, you know, hierarchical. It's combinatorial. It works a little bit like language, even if we can't write a precise grammar for it. And so we know that it means something about another human somewhere. But unlike language, it isn't definite. It doesn't have semantic meaning. It doesn't have a truth value. And so we have a message that we can't quite decode. And all of those feelings that are connected to human relationships, longing, desire, all of those are mixed in to that undecipherable message. And all of that pours out in the moment mm-hmm. of interpretation. Of yeah, I think music is one of those art forms where, you know, a singer, a band, a musician, whatever, they can write, for example, a breakup song. And that breakup song means something special to them, but everyone listening to that song, it can mean a billion, infinite, many different things. And I think that's what makes music so special. And I think, you know, that does cross to other art forms, like looking at like a painting or a sculpture or going to watch like movies. I, I grew up on movies. So like different movies mean different things to me. And just the art form in general becomes so special because you're allowed to take your own life experiences, your own life challenges, and put yourself into the art even if that's not what the original creator meant that art to be. I think that's exactly right. And the fascinating part about music in this is that it was doing that abstract thing way before the other art forms were. So if you think about an abstract painting that has no clear representation, right? It has no figures in it. There's no story in it. You know, maybe it's a Pollock, which is just like, you know, the different forms of paint on the canvas. Music, as the art of tones was doing that in instrumental works and in symphonies centuries before the other art forms were doing that. And that's why I think the 18th century is such a pivotal moment for music and the emotions, because music in its instrumental form was becoming more and more popular and gained new venues for concerts in the 18th century, the rise of the public concert. And so it left thinkers wondering, well, what is this trying to say? There's a great quote from the scientific thinker Bernard de Fontenelle, where he asks, you know, of a concert, Sonata, what do you want from me? What are you trying to tell me? You know, um, this is way before abstract representation in the other arts. And I think that's why it was this moment that thinkers started to say, well, maybe it's the pure language of the emotions. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the art form for expressing emotion. And in fact, Maybe we need to understand emotion with music. Oh, I like that. Well, we are, Roger, we are going to get into the drama of the 18th century composers. I'm excited for it. Uh, Listeners, I would like to welcome to the show Roger Grant. Roger is the professor of music at Wesleyan University in Connecticut and also serves as Dean of Arts and Humanities at the university. Through his extensive knowledge in the fields of 18th century music, music theory, and affect theory, he has become a respected authority in shedding light on how music can evoke and express a wide range of emotion deepening our understanding of the profound impact it has and continues to have in our society. Roger, welcome to Water Cooler Talk. Thank you so much for that generous introduction, Adam. (laughs) Uh, So I want to talk a bit about your work at Wesleyan, Uh, more importantly, the focus on the importance of the arts, but also connect it back to something you mentioned from the previous story in our uh, pre-episode discussion and how we seem to be having this issue with socializing with one another and how the arts, whether it be music, film, literature, paintings, plays, podcasts, etc., play a vital and important role in how we foster connection and why art programs are important. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we're just coming out of such a difficult period where not only we had a health pandemic to reckon with, but we also had accompanying pandemics of you know, racial crisis, and also an abiding mental health crisis that's been exacerbated by the compounding, you know, crises of the the pandemic, living in, living in this, in this modern era. So we're just coming out of that. We're trying to rebuild. We're trying to reconnect with each other. What I see the students at Wesleyan reaching for are forms of creative expression. And I think that's really interesting because 
you know, there's a lot of people who might say, okay, well, certainly there's been a rise of interest in, you know, supply chains and um, infrastructure and public health. And we do see that at Wesleyan very much. But there's something else happening. And it's this incredible interest and enthusiasm in relating to each other through art. I think that there's something that is a, a kind of a deep solve that students are naturally drawn to in wanting to be with each other inside of creative practice. And it's not just the final product model that was maybe more popular like 10 or 15 years ago. So it's not just that they want, you know, to be lights, camera, action, the center of attention on the stage. The students are actually asking for the arts programs to focus on process mm. so that it's not about, you know, creating a really polished uh, portfolio at the end of their experience, but being together in the messy work of creative expression in the ensemble. Yep. And I really think it's just a reaction to being isolated for the past several years. I'm really excited about what we're going to be able to offer them with the expansion of our, our arts programs at Wesley. Yeah, I've always been a big proponent, obviously, of humans want to connect with one another, and especially working in the space where I have conversations, working in the news, obviously politics dominate the news. And so if you're looking to try to connect with someone and you start at politics, which is becoming very divisive, you're less likely to connect with someone, they're less likely to hear what you're saying, you're less likely to hear what they're saying. And so if you can change that narrative, if you can connect on things that aren't, I mean, obviously, politics are important. But if you can connect on things that aren't politics, aren't divisive right off the bat, I think we have better conversations, we have better communication. I mean, I've always said, man, that's why I like that, you know, what was your first concert question, because it connects on something that literally everyone's been to a concert or some form of a concert that they remember that, you know, is deep within their brain that they're going to remember the rest of their life. And if we can connect on that stuff, favorite movies, I mean, I think we could have a lot better conversations. And that's why I think, Art programs are so important throughout either, you know, higher academia, uh, high school classes below that as well. It's so important that you show people that there are so many ways to connect. And obviously, you know, the arts and my experience being able to understand myself better by expression through art. I think it's so important. And I hate when it's always, you know, taking away art classes, taking away, you know, these classes that I think can really help people form better connections with one another, when we're focused on the beauty of creation and how something connects, or I mean, even say I have a favorite movie, and you don't like that movie, it's not going to be as divisive if you like this certain politician, and I like this other politician, because it's not as serious, but if we can connect on that, if we can disagree on stuff like that, we can learn how to disagree together, we can learn how to love and communicate together, it creates a better word, and that's world. It creates a better world, and that's why I think our programs are so important. That's kind of, I was excited that you asked or brought that up because I was like, yeah, it is important. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, I think we're really lucky in higher ed because the students that we get allow us to know what's important to them. They vote with their feet based on registrations, based on enrollment. We get the message from them that it, it's not that they're uh, disinterested in the past, as some people might think, you know, or, you know, only uh, interested in, in what they're doing. They're interested in exploring the history of humanity and how we relate to each other through their own creative practice. Mm -hmm. So there's a shift in emphasis. It's, it's a shift in wanting to be a part of an ongoing conversation about human relationships through creative practice. And maybe that means that some of the more traditional lecture courses are less popular, but it's only because students are interested in this other kind of historical and cultural form of investigation. And I think that's really inspiring. Well, yeah, and I, I kind of want to talk about uh, kind of segue into your like your future work and this, I thought, incredibly interesting idea of pop music and its relation to the queer community. And, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong on how I understood this, but mainstream acceptance has endangered this once unique subculture. Absolutely. Yeah, this is a fun project that I've been working on with and my... And I believe it's called Unseriousness? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's um, it's basically a love song to pop music. And I've been working on this with my longtime friend and collaborator, David Halperin, who's a historian of sexuality. And David and I got very interested in how it is that queers are so attached to something 
as mainstream and as mass culture as pop music, <laughs> right? How does that work, right? Uh-huh. If, if we're a subculture, why are we interested in this mass cultural phenomenon? And how does that, how does it help us to connect and to share our in-group sentiments with each other? And part of it is this amazing investment in unseriousness, in being silly and showing up for each other as vulnerable humans that are ready to get stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love that description. And, you know, I think what happens, what's happened for a long time in queer culture is that we're used to getting trivialized. We're used to having our feelings seen as less authentic than straight people. Mm-hmm. This happens in lots of different ways. Right now, it's very focused on the trans community and the trivialization of trans people's feelings and the trivialization of, you know, trans identity just in general, right? But for a long time, queers writ large have responded to that trivialization by saying, well, no, you're not going to trivialize me. I'm going to trivialize myself. Mm. I'm going to get there before you do and say, you know what? I am really silly. I am actually just like a really insane, hyperbolic, crazy, flaming, whatever you want. I'm going to do it myself before you say it. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And that's how we protect our feelings, by saying, like, well, if I call my feelings silly, then I own it, and then you can't take it away from me. And I think that's where the investment in bubblegum, you know, feel-good pop music comes from. Because if we hide our serious feelings in the kind of seemingly trivial strains of popular music then it's a safe place for them. Mm -hmm. Then they can't be trivialized by other people. Well, how have you seen like the use of something like streaming services like Spotify, Apple Music? Obviously, it has been this boon in cultural uh, appreciation because now I can listen to music from all over the world. I mean, we've done this before. I mean, the Silk Road was like, right, a good example of that on, Mm. you know, sharing culture. But now we've gotten to a point where technology has mean we can literally you know, hear a song somebody from the other side of the world post. And how have you seen that change within the queer community, the the rise of streaming and or have you even seen that? Wow. No, it's it's so important. It's it's really so important. I mean, one of the interesting things is how streaming services, but also more importantly, TikTok, mm. I think actually <laughs> picks up some really old classics. Yep. So you know you'll see that something from deep in the archive of queer culture all of a sudden gets gets sprung into the group consciousness again. So I think that's very interesting. That feeds forward into DJ sets and what people are asking DJs to play. Um, so I think that that's a fascinating effect. But with, with streaming services and Spotify in particular, I'm a little bit less enthusiastic maybe because it does have the effect of unlocking the deep cuts. I think that's great. Mm-hmm. It also has the effect of changing how artists write music for the present day. And people may not realize this. I think there's a, there's a certain amount of recognition of this phenomenon. But pop artists in the present day are actually guided very much by the remuneration formula that Spotify has instituted. So you get paid, as it were, as an artist, you get paid for a song after a spin, which means, and so a spin, that is one playing of a song, somebody playing a song on Spotify, occurs only after the song has reached the one minute That's mark. so interesting, really, just to jump in. So for podcasts, it's 30 seconds. At 30 seconds. That's so interesting. Yeah, it's uh, it's a minute for the musical tracks, if I uh, have Yeah, I might right. be wrong on that. I'll double check for the corrections, but I'm. that's the last time I read it was that. Check it out. I was wrong. First time ever, uh, actually, a fun fact there. For a podcast on Spotify, it needs to be at least 60 seconds. For Apple Podcasts, apparently it's more than zero seconds. And Google is at least five seconds. I had a, a brilliant student that wrote a thesis with me, a senior thesis with me, who was a double major in music and economics. His name is Teddy Keegan, and he investigated this in particular. He did a deep dive into the remuneration uh, formula, and he demonstrated that the way that people are composing their songs now, there is a beat drop and a chorus before the one minute mark mm. so that you're hooked into the track and you're going to continue playing it so that you get that spin. Also, artists are bringing in their guests, right? So if Justin Bieber performs on a track, he enters before the one minute mark so that you keep playing it past 
where Bieber pops up, right? <laughs> now, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I, I think the thing that worries me is that this is an area where some corporation is actually, their policies are now changing how the form of the artistic artifact works. It's actually the, the policy has found its way into aesthetic form. And, you know, there are countless examples of this in history. This is the, just the most recent. But what if we want longer pop songs? What if we want a pop song that has a longer pre-chorus, right? So I think there's a reason to be not universally celebratory of of the streaming services. I get your point, and I think it definitely has changed music. But I also understand, I mean, and obviously you know a lot more about this, so correct me where I'm wrong here. But like looking back, I mean, John Bannister, one of the first, you know, the English violinist uh, in 1672, one of the first, you know, public concerts, you know, how concerts changed to have uh, crescendos and longer pause breaks. So when the audience was listening, it was changing. And so could this just be another situation of how music changes based on how society is set up? Wow, you are good, Adam. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. My ego is going to be so high this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> it should be. No, I mean, you're right. This is just the most recent iteration. And the rise of the public concert did all kinds of fascinating things. For one thing, it was a public space that was not the home, it was not the church, it was not the court. The common people could go. Yes, and there was class mixing. So um, so this is good, uh, but it also does, I think, encourage a particular kind of composition. And, you know, people have looked at, uh, you know, the Haydn string quartets as an area where, okay, well, we can see the Haydn Symphony is written for, you know, public consumption. So maybe it's written in a certain way where there are big, loud surprises. The Haydn String Quartet is written for the insider, mm. not for an audience of listeners, but for the performers themselves. And so you can see, if you look at the vocabulary look at, you know, used in the string quartets and the vocabulary used in the symphonies, you can see subtle differences in how phrases overlap with each other and how that encouraged different kind of composition in each one of those forms. Um, I think this is fascinating, simply from a historical perspective. But there's no doubt, just as you're saying, that, in fact, the, the, the commercial you know, interests have come in and changed the aesthetic form. I think that that's, that's absolutely the case. One, the one thing I would love to bring back is they would do, uh, people would buy yearly um, subscriptions to concerts. I mean, with Ticketmaster and Live Nation and the prices now, I mean, that would be pretty cool to have like a yearly subscription to concerts. Well, let me tell you something as a Taylor Swift fan. <laughs> I just want to let you know here. No, because my partner and I talk about this. Okay, so... Taylor Swift is is on tour. Yep. Uh, you know this. I'm actually going to go see uh, Phoebe Bridgers and Boy Genius in Montana this summer. No way, really? Yeah. Amazing. No, so these concerts, right? I just just for anyone who thinks that classical music or opera is elitist. The the Taylor Swift concerts tickets right now, you could buy two of them to attend and see Taylor Swift for the same price that I just paid for a season of <laughs> operas at the Met yeah. in the parterre boxes. So, you know, that's seven operas for two people in some of the best seats in the Metropolitan Opera, the largest performing arts organization in North America. And that's the same price as two tickets to a single Taylor Swift show. So I'm not sure which one is more elitist, but I just wanted to put that out there. I mean, I did hear in Nashville, she did like a 42 song set or, or 42 or 52 song set. It was a 45 song set, which I mean, that's worth your money. But and I, listeners, I do just want to make sure that I know Phoebe Bridgers and Taylor Swift are not the same people. Phoebe Bridgers is currently opening for Taylor Swift. Right. Uh, but before we move on, myself and you, sometimes you get the emails where people are like, you're an idiot, Adam. Hey, listen, like, that wasn't Taylor. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Uh, before we move on, myself and Watercooler Talk have embarked upon a mission to give back to various parts of the community and those who helped build our show to where it stands today. For each new episode of the podcast, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. And on the day of their episode, so going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to that charity in honor of the guest, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. And we invite you listening to this episode to join in to help spread that message to your own personal audience. Uh, Roger, actually very cool charity, so thank you for sharing it. But your charity of choice for today's episode is Carney's Hall 
Lullaby Project. Can you share with us the significance of their work and why they're a good fit for our music-centric conversation today? Absolutely. Yeah. So I wanted to choose a music charity for you, Adam. And I love the work of this Lullaby Project. I've been a huge admirer of it for many years. So the idea is Carnegie Hall wanted to, in its public programming, in its public-facing uh, institution, they wanted to find a way of helping mothers, new and expectant mothers, to sing to their children and to connect with them in a completely unique and authentic way. And so, you know, the question is, if, if you're going to uh, sing a lullaby to your child, why should it be somebody else's music? Why can't it be your own? Uh, so Carnegie Hall uses their network of professional musicians to partner with new and expected mothers uh, in and around the New York area and to help write the lullabies with them. So the mothers provide ideas, they provide little song snippets, they provide text to the musicians, and then there's this collaboration in which the mother gets a brand new written for her lullaby that they can use to sing to their kids. Yeah, it was such like a cool and unique charity and work, and I was like, you would never hear about this unless it was shared and shared and shared, and so that's hopefully we can get some more people to feel that same way. Absolutely. All right, Roger, are you ready to jump into our final news story of the episode? Yeah. This is from Consequence Sounds Music, written by Abby Jones, May 2nd, 2023. Ed Sheeran threatens to quit music if found guilty in copyright infringement case. Musician Ed Sheeran is in the midst of a trial for a lawsuit that claims his song Thinking Out Loud rips off Marvin Gaye's classic, Let's get it on. Darling, I will be loving you till we're 70. Let's get it on. His attorneys have spent the past few months unsuccessfully trying to get the case dismissed, but now he's raising the stakes by threatening to quit music entirely if he's found guilty of the copyright infringement claim. In a statement from Sheeran's attorney on if the plaintiffs won the case, he stated, If that happens... I'm done. I'm stopping. I find it really insulting to devote my whole life to being a performer and a songwriter and have someone diminish it. Sheeran has vehemently insisted that any similarities between his 2014 hit and Gay's 1973 song are purely coincidental, and that those similarities were too common to constitute copyright infringement. To drive, <laughs> this was hilarious, uh, exactly what a singer would do. To drive his point home, he reportedly belted out various mashups of Van Morrison songs for the courtroom which probably did not help him as much as he thought. The federal copyright infringement case was filed back in 2018 by Structured Asset Sales, an entity that owns part of the copyrights of Ed Townsend, who uh, was actually a co-writer on Let's Get It On. And just for an update, maybe him belting out Van Morrison did work. Judge Lewis Stanton dismissed the case, finding that the chord progression that was alleged to have been copied wasn't unique enough to merit a copyright claim. The judge stated that it is especially true here where the chord progression and the harmonic rhythm in Let's Get It On do not form a pattern, but instead essentially merge into one element. I might have to have you explain that, Roger, because it's still a little confusing to me. Uh, after the decision by Judge Staten, Sheeran stated, I'm obviously very happy with the outcome of the case, and it looks like I'm not having to retire from my day job after all. But at the same time, I'm unbelievably frustrated that baseless claims like this are allowed to go to court at all. So can you, first off, just to kind of help the listeners and myself, explain a little bit about what Judge Stanton is talking about here? Yes, absolutely. So there are two elements that I want to talk about. There's the chord progression, and then uh, the judge talks specifically about harmonic rhythm. And I know that the, the plaintiff's uh, forensic musicologist, whose name is Alex Stewart, used the harmonic rhythm in the argument very specifically. So first, let's talk about the chord progression. The chord progression in, it's actually not identical in these pieces, but it's very similar. I won't get into the specifics of what the chord progression is, but it's four chords. These four chords, the way that they work together, there are tons of songs that use the same four chords. So if you wanted to base it on that, you'd be in deep trouble because mm -hmm. there, there's tons of songs that use these same four chords. <laughs> and if you were to hear them, you'd think, well, this could be any song, right? Now, Alex Stewart, um, he said, well, it's not just the fact that it's the four chords. It's the way that the chords move in a particular rhythm all together. And he was trying to pin it on that. So the movement of the chords at a particular time, that is harmonic rhythm. 
And in this particular instance, you probably will recognize it. It's this bum, 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 bum. So it's a particular kind of rhythm, and it goes in this cycle. Now, Stuart was trying to say the fact that they both have that same harmonic rhythm with almost the same chords, that means that it's a duplication. Mm. But in fact, even on that narrower criteria, there are tons of songs that still do that. One of my favorite is The Power of Love by Hugh Lewis and the News, which was written for uh, the first Back to the Future. And, of course, I will never forget that because I had a crush on Ma- Michael J. Fox when I was growing I mean, up. he's an attractive fella. He's Obviously, an attractive fella. right? Yeah. Everyone's attractive in that movie. Oh, my God. They're all beautiful, <laughs> right? So I think this is really interesting. Um, now, Power of Love, still written after the Let's Get It On, which was 1973, but before Ed Sheeran, of course. So it's a fairly common progression with a fairly common rhythm in a fairly common harmonic rhythm that upon which a lot of different songs are based. And so what we begin to see here is how musical vocabulary is like speech vocabulary. All of the phrases that we utter are combinations of things that have been said before. And music is very much like this. If it were not, it would be indecipherable (laughs) and intolerable. So in order for the song to be a song that's enjoyable to listen to and recognizable for us as a you know something nice to to hear it needs to draw on that set of shared vocabulary yeah no i mean oh my gosh roger you're a great conversational partner it's because i asked you about the concert uh but this perfectly segues into kind of really what i wanted to talk about obviously you might know this guy igor stravinsky but he said a good composer does not imitate he steals ultimately saying in my opinion that you know as and as you're saying you know the world around us influences us and we're allowed to pick and choose the parts we like to make something new. And with there being, I don't know how many chords are on a guitar, like five, six, I, whatever. At some point, somebody is going to play something that sounds similar. And so what are your thoughts on that concept of there being this no new original works of art? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a fascinating question. I love that Stravinsky quote. That's amazing. It's a great quote. Yeah. Now, having said that, In terms of how many chords are on the guitar, infinite. There are infinite numbers of chords on a guitar. And the reason for that is just Or sorry, I meant more like the strings. Oh, got it. Yes, apologies, yeah. Right, well, so those are limited, but the chords that you can get out of them are unlimited. Okay, yes. And that's just just about like how combinatoriality works, right? How many permutations and combinations can you get, um, including, you know, the null set or whatever. But that doesn't mean that there are you know, uh, no rules in terms of how you put those things together. Um, And these aren't rules of like a law, like you can do this and you cannot do this, but it's a little bit like how grammar works. So there are only so many deviations from standard linguistic grammar that you can make before you're undecipherable. Language, Language works because it communicates, because it conveys meaning. And music is a little bit like that. It doesn't convey meaning, but it does convey that shared sense of connection and understanding. And in order to do that, it has to, in a certain sense, conform to a set of practices and conventions. And so that's what Stravinsky's talking about. He's constantly stealing those conventions. He's repurposing them. He's turning them around. He's flipping them upside down. Maybe he's taking them and stretching them in a way that's provocative. But if the connection to that convention isn't there, then it's just going to be nonsense. Yeah, there has to be something that draws people in that says, oh, yeah, this reminds me of something. Like even developing this show, show, I was like taking pieces from – I'm a huge Conan fan, you know. So I'm taking pieces from Conan and how to make conversations relatable and funny. Also taking pieces from some of the great conversational individuals in our lifetime and understanding what about that works. And I don't think that's copying or, you know, stealing whatsoever, but that's influence. That's being able to create something that's your own that has special meaning to you from the basis of your life, your life experiences. And I think you do have to get to that point or you do have to avoid that point where influence does become imitation because that's like, all right, this you're stealing from me. 
But as long as you stay below that line and use your influence to create something new and something unique and original, I do think we are creating new original pieces of uh, art at every moment because just because a little piece of it has existed before doesn't mean the majority of it hasn't or has. And it's so it's so interesting to know where the line is. One of my uh, favorite one of my favorite copyright cases of the past century is this one. All right, so Adam, I'm going to ask you to identify this song. Oh my gosh. So this is why I got out of the music industry because <laughs> I know the song as soon as you say it, um I think it's Mark Wahlberg. Nope, it's Oh my, I know what this is. I know what it is. Give me, give me, give me a slight hint. Uh, somebody who is royalty, especially a royal who just passed away. Mm, they, that person shares a name or title. Oh my gosh. Now I feel like a buffoon. <laughs> Rogers, give it to me. Okay, so that that I just sang you is the baseline for Under Pressure. Yeah, oh my God. Queen, Queen and David Bowie. However. Roger, no, here's the embarrassing thing. I just watched that movie like two weeks ago. Oh, really? No way. (laughs) That's so funny. This is why I don't work in the music industry anymore. This is why I'm in podcasting. Well, if you had said Ice Ice Baby, you would have been close because all that was changed in order to make it the baseline for Ice Ice Baby. I got the white rapper right. You did. You did get that. So (laughs) you you were on the right track. You were going there. You were going there. But um, so Vanilla Ice only added one tiny pickup note yep. to that bass line and then turned it into his bass line for Ice Ice Baby. So he just adds da 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 just that little pickup. And in his mind, that made it okay. They eventually settled it out of court. Vanilla Ice eventually bought the publishing rights of Under Pressure for $4 million and now must include and credit Queen and David Bowie as co-songwriters for his hit song, Ice Ice Baby. But to me, that was an example of just stealing. I mean, that's just stealing, right? Yeah. Um, so the, the question is always like, where's the line? Where's the line between, you know, imitation borrowing, you know, just a little bit of friendly intertextuality, a conversation that's happening between the works, and then just theft. Where is that line? I don't think there's ever a good answer. Uh, but we keep trying. Yeah, it, ch- it changes, and each of these types of cases will, I don't think we'll ever get to a point where we know exactly where that line is. We might, but each of these cases kind of gets us closer to better understanding what that looks like. And, of course, it, this kind of connects to our earlier part of the conversation that, you know, part of it has to do with what our expectations are for the product. So, because we live in a world where rights and, you know, uh, the, the, the royalties that accrue to performances and spins are very much a part of the uh, artistic endeavor, then we get litigious around these issues. Um, in the 18th century, composers stole from each other all the time because they weren't thinking in the same terms that we do now. Oh, yeah, now. yeah. Let's get into Mozart and Haydn and obviously Bach just stealing whatever wasn't bolted down. Outright theft. But <laughs> but I think the way that they thought about it... So, for instance, um, Handel and the composer Telemann stole each other's material all the time. Handel's Messiah, very popular at Christmas time. A couple of the passages in there are just outright stolen from the instrumental sonatas of Telemann. The, the two composers knew about this and they saw it as a sign of their friendship, mm. that they stole each other's music. They saw it as a sign of respect, actually. Another fun fact I found was Handel, after Telemann became an avid gardener, would send him rare bulbs and tubers. Once when a shipment went missing, the rumor was Telemann had passed, but when the rumor was proven false, Handel sent a replacement shipment with a note that read, You can imagine my joy to find you are back in perfect health. The life and times of 18th century composers, ladies and gentlemen. Basically, what they were trying to do is just get performances of their works, you know, and and make money on mounting those performances. That was that was how they were, you know, benefiting financially from their music making. Now we think about the musical product in a very different way. So if you think about, you know, Handel trying to get performances of his music, those performances, the labor of those musical performances was the product. In other words, the product disappeared in the action of making it. It was ephemeral. It was labor that, you know, created the thing, 
in the moment of its performance. And that was that. Now we think about musical products being intellectual property. And we think about them existing in the form of recordings to which the, the rights, you know, generate a particular kind of relationship. So the fact that this has changed, I think, also means that our understanding of musical borrowing and intertextuality has to change along with it. Yeah, I was reading about like music within like the medieval Renaissance period, the Gregorian chant, the... And all that just being copied over and over and over again. And you're building little pieces off, you know, regardless of like what culture you're kind of in, what, you know, society you're in. But ultimately, it was just stealing that same chant over and over and over again. I think it's really interesting when you get into like this 18th century classical music and how it just completely changed. And what do you think that reason was? Because obviously, these are people making money from this. Uh, but it's not the same as it is now where, like you kind of mentioned, it's intellectual property. But like just kind of what changed where people were like, yeah, yeah, this is mine. Because like even going back to like the the music they played for Kings and stuff is all just like we're just sharing the music. And it's all like it felt like a collaborative effort. But now it's become to feel more independent in a way. Well, I think a, a couple of things happened at the same time. The first thing is just that the structure of um, commodity capitalism changed around musical practices. Mm. But it's not just that that changed and now it's altered the way we do things forever. I think also that kind of creativity, that kind of sharing and trading and messing things up, it moved over. So the very same way that medieval and Renaissance composers took chance and then built entire masses around them or took a dirty song and then made a very serious and solemn mass around it, that same thing is actually still going on. It's on TikTok. Okay, yeah, well, that's a good point. Think about how a sound on TikTok gets changed by somebody writing a piano tune underneath it, and then somebody puts a skit to it, and then somebody writes, you know, like some other variation on that and puts somebody else's heads onto it. That culture of transformation and modification that's still alive in underground ways. Yeah. yeah, it just moved over. So I also want to kind of get into cover bands too, because here's a band that's making money playing the songs of other people. Like, what are your thoughts there when it comes to like a story like this? That's so interesting. I mean, you know, a cover band always is working for the performance, whereas the recording artist is working for the recording. And what's fascinating about this is that the recording artist feeds forward into the cover band industry because those cover bands, some of them are so exact that they will mimic the precise timing of the track as it exists on the recording. And that's what fidelity is to them. And so in a way, they're not just covering the performances, they're covering the recording tracks of the artists that they're paying tribute to. So I think, you know, it's interesting because it kind of feeds forward into this cover band industry. A friend of mine in grad school wrote his dissertation on tribute bands. Uh, his name's John Paul Myers, and he teaches now at uh, University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. And I thought it was so fascinating how some of these tribute bands that he investigates, they, they're so exact that they have the paraphernalia down, they have the costumes <laughs> down. They, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really exacting tribute. And this is another way, connecting back to our earlier conversation, that People are invested in the investigation of the past mm -hmm. through creative expression. And what I think is so interesting about this is that, you know, we have lots of different ways of honoring the past, lots of different ways of, of honoring the communities who came before us. Sometimes it's memorializing them in a text. Sometimes it's, you know, honoring them with, uh, you know, a kind of a course or a plaque or a public memorial or something like that. Sometimes it's through performance. I think that classical music is very good at that. Now popular music is starting to get good at that through these cover bands and tribute bands. And so, you know, every time we go to a performance of Don Giovanni at the Met, it's, in a way, it's like the biggest, best cover band experience you've ever witnessed, <laughs> right? It's, it's, it's a, a hardcore 18th century cover band, mm -hmm. you know, that's being produced at a huge level. Now popular music is starting to do that, too. 
And so I think it's great. I, I think it's I mean, I love it way. as someone who was born in the 90s. I mean, going to like Hairball and like these 80 cover bands. It's like cool because like I will never be able to experience that music at that time period. But to even just get a just a small piece of it, I'm like, oh, man, you know, I wish I could have. But I'm happy that I'm seeing it right now. And you have that. Yeah, exactly. You have a different way of relating to it. And that that comes through these cover bands. Yeah. Well, I want to go uh, back to the future. Uh, pun there awesome for uh future creators of, of music roger creators in general what inspiration can they obtain from the rise of something like let's say comic opera and its innovative ability in rounding it all the way back to your book peculiar attunements its ability to connect and move its audience what i think that uh people can glean from an episode like the rise of comic opera in the 18th century is the fascinating way in which works of art incorporate their own critique and their own history in order to move people toward a new social end. That's exactly what comic opera was doing. It was critiquing serious opera, mm-hmm. making fun of it a little bit, taking the history of serious opera as its subject matter in order to say, hey, we can also represent real people. We don't have to just give people's stories about kings and queens and gods and heroes. We can also talk about, you know, the average Joe and his experiences and foibles with a difficult love life or, you know, a chaotic marriage and put that on the stage. Now, for the 18th century, that was revolutionary. For the present day, it looks very different. But artworks are still talking about history, still talking about human heritage and and human experience by involving themselves in a critique. And I think that's what really inspires me about, you know, our arts programs at Wesleyan, that students aren't just interested in making something new. They're interested in investigating human history through creative practice. I think that, you know, they're involved in that same process, that same legacy that comic opera gave us in the 18th century of, creating social change through through creative expression. Yeah, I think that's so important and just to have it accessible to everybody. I understand that people have to make money and they have to pay their bills and put a roof over their head and food on their tables, but I, I'm just a firm believer that art should be available to everyone. Everyone should have the same chance, like you're saying. I mean, it just shouldn't be for the kings and queens. It shouldn't be for the ultra-wealthy. It shouldn't be for the elite. The fact that I can put out this podcast, have this amazing conversation with you out to thousands and thousands of people in every corner of the world for free. That's amazing to me. That's amazing that we can spread this type of conversation. We can spread art. We can spread music. We can spread movies. And it's so beautiful. And it's it, it was so awesome being able to read about you know the comic opera and how it developed in the 18th century and all these things. So, I mean, I very much appreciate you being a, <laughs> so interested in yourself. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you for being a utopian alongside me. <laughs> you know, um, there's this great line in, in Plato's Republic where uh, Glaucon and Socrates are talking about music and they're... They're a little bit worried about involving it in the Republic and they're, they're talking about how, how it's so effective at creating emotions in people. And finally they get to the end of the conversation and, and they say, well, you know, I think, in fact, everyone knows that rhythm and harmony find their way into the inward places in the soul. And that's good because what other end should there be for music? if not the love mm. of beauty. I think that's a good way uh, to end our conversation here, Roger. Roger, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your perspective on some of the strangest and most bizarre news stories the world has to offer in an engaging, productive, and meaningful conversation. Listeners, if you would like to support Roger in his work teaching and supporting the arts at Wesleyan, you can do so by heading to his university website at www.rogermatthewgrant.faculty.westland.edu, obviously, as always, to make it easier for you listeners. That website link will be included in the description of this episode and on our podcast website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. So just a final question here, Roger, before I let you on your way. What role has music played in the history of us? Uh, whether it be how the affectation of music changed after, as we talked about, the first live concerts by John Bannister in 1672, to the importance of juke joints in you know the southeastern United States and pirate radio on keeping culture alive. 
does music have the same power to carry on tradition as spoken and written word? I think it has a more pronounced power to carry on tradition, and that's because you can't pin it down. Whereas spoken word and text, uh, you know, can be reduced, if you will, to meaning. Music overspills that boundary. I don't think that the excess that music affords us, that, that amount that exceeds meaning will ever be contained and that we'll ever fully understand it. And that's what makes it so compelling. That's what means that we'll never let it go. I 100% agree with you. The thing, I mean, I listen to a lot of Latin music and I'm trying to learn Spanish, but I don't understand half of what's being said, but I understand the music. I understand how it makes me feel, how it's supposed to make me feel, how it moves my body. And you can't do that in the same way with written or spoken text if you don't, if there's that language barrier there. And I think music and obviously the fact that it's still here, it's still in society, it's still a huge part of society means that it has some power to it. I could not agree more. Uh, Roger, we are now to my very favorite part of the podcast, where I get to hand off this vessel of creation from my hands to yours. And in doing so, I only ask just just so little from you, Roger, only that you take on the very, 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 very small task of, and I, I think I'm understanding this concept, but harnessing the concept behind Musica Humana, tap into the idea and special nature of music and how we feel and experience the world, and leave us with something that truly connects us all. So Roger, absolutely no <laughs> pressure whatsoever. Close out our wonderful conversation in the only way that makes sense. I'd love to encourage everybody to share beauty in whatever way is meaningful to you. Uh, I think that's what Plato is talking about at the end of that part of the Republic when he says, you know, if the end of music uh, be not the love of beauty. If there's a way that you can share beauty, I'd say take the risk and try to do it. I love that, Roger. Uh, I just want to say just a huge gratitude to you. A very thanks for you to coming on the show and having this conversation. Like I said, just the, the ability to do a deep dive into some of your favorite things. Now they might become, you know, my favorite things. I mean, even me and my girlfriend did deep dives on this and she helps me doing some of the research. And like, we just had these amazing conversations about music and about this time period. And uh, just, I'm so thankful that you were open to having this conversation. Thank you so much, Adam. It's really a huge pleasure and um, yeah, I'm I'm really big fan. Thank you. Well, listeners, we are going to take a short break, and when we come back, the show will be over. Peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. I read in the paper you sat down with the jury, and I think this is great. And you took out your guitar. And you said to the jury, you think I ripped off this song? I'm going to play you something now and show you how similar things can be. What did you play for that jury? Um, if I was the jury, yeah, what did you say to them? So it was, um, so my one is, um, when your legs don't work like they used to before. And then there's, have I told you lately that I loved you? And then, um, um, people get ready. There's a train coming. Um, and then, uh. What was the looks like we made it look how far we've come my baby and oh she breaks just like a woman i mean there was there was 101 songs that and that was like scratching the surface there was like 101 you know there's um uh, i guess you say it's it's really and what i was saying is like Yes, it's a chord sequence that you hear on successful songs but if you say that a song in 1973 owns this then what about all the songs that came before we found songs like from like the 1700s that had similar uh melodic stuff and then there was like huge songs in the 50s and huge songs in the 60s and it's just no one's saying that songs shouldn't be copyrighted but you just can't copyright a chord sequence you just can't